Our primary passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And while you turn there, I'll mention that this evening we are planning to return to our prior series on 2 Samuel. We left off right at the point where King David has now been crowned over all of the united tribes of Israel. And we pick up right where, just after he is crowned, they are surrounded by their enemies. And we're going to see how that teaches us the way that we respond to a different but related kind of warfare as the people of God. Now, this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 9, and our text is going to be verses 35 through 38. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right out the gate, the Lord is showing us that prayer takes precedence over every other means that we might avail ourselves of. Let's go before him and ask for his blessing even now. Almighty God, most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves this morning and fall down before your majesty. Father, we ask from the bottom of our hearts that you would take the seed of your word now sown among us and that you would cause it to take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution would cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life would choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground brings forth 30 or 60 or a hundredfold, we ask that you would cause the word this morning by your spirit to bring forth a bountiful crop of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The things that move people emotionally say a lot about them. It's true of everyone. It's true of you. And if you take the opposite of that, things that do not move you also speak volumes about your humanity, about your character. Imagine for a moment that you're driving up Highway 87. Maybe you're a child here. You're just with your parents. You're driving in the night, up towards Payson, out in one of those long stretches where there's not a whole lot of anything, and you look out, and there's a child, a little child, four or five years old, all by herself. If I ask you, what should you do, I imagine many of you would be able right away to list off the things you ought to do, you know, pull over, call the police, but it's a different question, what should you feel? What should you feel? And what would it mean if you didn't feel anything? Last week, we encountered a passage in Mark's gospel where it was memorable to them that Jesus became upset, upset about something that he saw, namely the harm of children. 
Now we come to another passage where for Matthew, it's stuck in his memory, a time when Jesus had an emotional response to something. And this morning, the Holy Spirit sets before you this need that moved Christ inwardly so that you would not only feel the right things about it, by God's grace, you will feel the right things about it, but so that we respond in the right way. The desire that the Lord has for you this morning is that you would move through compassion out of complacency into action. And the Lord even tells us a specific, a primary action that he desires for us in light of the need that we're going to see. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to do so under three main divisions. I'll describe them each. I'll note them each as we come to them. But the first has to do with the need, and I want to set the scene a little bit here in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, this follows the first major period of Jesus' itinerant ministry, meaning that he's gone all around. Now look at the verse with me, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Put that into our context. Imagine Jesus came here to Arizona because the area of Maricopa County is actually somewhat comparable to the region that we're talking about with Jesus. And he goes on a kind of tour, particularly to the churches, because here he's visiting the synagogues, but he's also outdoors. And so he goes to Peoria, he goes to Glendale, he's over in Gilbert, he's in Ahwatukee. He's going through all these areas. He makes his way up to Paradise Valley. And then he comes back to the central area, and he's going to tell us something about what he's seen. And what he tells us is that he observes a need. He observes a need in everything that he sees. And this first key idea here from this passage is to correctly identify what is the need that the Lord perceives in the world. Now, the need is not perhaps what we would expect initially from the text. You've heard the text, you're aware of the need, but put yourself back, you're hearing it for the first time. Verse 35 mentions crowds filled with all kinds of diseases and afflictions. And the time when this is being written is long before what historians sometimes call the Great Transition. The Great Transition, roughly 1850 to 1980, where there's tremendous medical advance. We take for granted something that our ancestors could not imagine, that we don't live constantly in the shadow of our own mortality. It usually takes the death of somebody for us to wake up to the fact that we could die too. And we usually don't think about it much until after age 65. Most people simply don't. But at this time, disease is obvious. There's not a place that they send everybody to be invisible while they're receiving their treatment and all of that. And naturally, the disciples feel compassion about these people. And Jesus felt compassion about their sickness. Don't get me wrong. By identifying this other need, it does not mean that the physical suffering doesn't matter. It's that God deals with whole people, whole people, body and soul. And Matthew records something that stood out that moved Jesus. In verse 36 and 37, he identifies the need before him in two pictures, two metaphors, two analogies. On the one hand, Jesus sees sheep without a shepherd. On the other hand, he sees a plentiful harvest, and few laborers to bring them in. 
You have the sheep, you have the harvest. This is the need that is weighing on Christ that causes him to speak out from his compassion. Now, when it talks about sheep without shepherds, you may be aware, this is a recurring image in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it comes up again and again. Sheep and shepherds. And primarily, when you encounter this, it's talking about the relationship between God as a loving provider who guides his people, and his people are pictured as the flock. He is the shepherd. But also, of course, this refers to human people, the leadership that God places at times over his church. And so you see examples of this. Numbers 27, I don't ask you to turn to these passages, just listen, they're very brief. Numbers 27, after Moses dies, there's a big question. Who's going to take care of the flock? Who's going to lead them? And Joshua is appointed, it says, so that Israel may not be like sheep without a shepherd. They had need of people to guide and to do so with godliness. 1 Kings 22, after King Ahab dies, Micaiah, the prophet, envisions Israel as, quote, scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. Why? Because without a king, of course, they were now prey to their enemies. They were not united. They're not receiving proper direction. This is going to affect their economics. This is going to affect their laws. And the people become like prey to the wolves. Now, Jesus looks at Israel as he goes around at this time in the first century. He's visiting all these synagogues. He's meeting thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. And somebody could object, probably would have objected then. What are you talking about? We have a king who has more power and riches and has built more stuff than anyone since Solomon in this land. And Herod had. He was incredibly powerful and he did make sure that nobody else was invading the land. And they could say, we have so many scribes and teachers. We are overflowing with scribes and teachers. Jesus practically can't walk through a crowd and bump into scribes and teachers. Why then does Jesus say they are like sheep without a shepherd? Why does he say in verse 36, they were harassed and helpless? Because the people who were occupying the office of shepherd were not committed to the true spiritual care of the people. They were not committed to the true spiritual care of the flock. They spoke words out of human wisdom, out of human opinion. They spoke words that were designed to gather to themselves wealth or admiration, but not committed as God's servants to the care of the flock. And so they are lacking, the multitudes are lacking faithful men who are committed to guide and to protect and provide for them. But then you look at the second aspect here in verses 36 and 37. Jesus mentions harvest. And this imagery is developed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the parable of the sower. Essentially, he's saying that there are people out there, humanly speaking, just waiting to be gathered into God's barn. Here, the harvest represents souls. Souls waiting to be gathered in. And in the context, Jesus is not getting into some upper-level conversation about election, reprobation, all of that. He's talking about the duty that God's people have to go out and exert themselves in gathering. That's the focus. And here, he says in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Again, Jesus talks in the Gospels about certain scribes who are very willing, and Pharisees who are willing to go make proselytes to their brand of religiosity. But true spiritual witnesses, people whom God recognizes, that person is speaking with my voice, Jesus says, are few and far between. And people who are fully committed to in-gathering and the work of evangelism, Jesus says there are not many. That was in the first century. So I put it to you as a sincere question. Imagine Jesus were to go on this itinerant journey today throughout the world, and maybe just here in Phoenix. And again, he goes to Gilbert, and he goes out to Mesa, and then he heads over to Avondale, and he's visiting churches, and he's walking the streets, and he's showing up in big areas, and tens of thousands of people are in front of him. Would he say the same thing? Or would Jesus perhaps say, you know what, we have more, now that I look at it, we have more than enough, totally committed, excellent shepherds who are proclaiming the true gospel faithfully, who are caring for the needs of the church, who are busy about the work, not for their own sake, but for the good of the congregation. And not only that, we have plenty of laborers who are out there gathering in the harvest. It's coming in a pace. Is that what he would say? I submit to you that it well may be worse today than it was then. When you consider total population, I'm not saying there's less believers. I have reason to hope there are more believers alive today than at any other one point in all of history. Sometimes we lose sight of that because we get so focused on our community here, and we lose sight of what the Lord is doing throughout the whole world. I have no problem imagining that we may have more people believing on Christ than ever. But per capita, are things better? And as we look at Phoenix, are things better? I want that to sit with you. We'll come back to that. But then what is Jesus' attitude toward the need? And in turn, how ought we to feel about the need? This brings us to our second division. Look with me at verse 36. Consider the attitude that Jesus expresses. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them. The word compassion here. It is a full word. The Greek term denotes a degree of anguish that makes your stomach turn and sour. Is there an English word that quite gets at that? Anguish, probably, for most of us, we think something more like that. But it's an intense word. And this is the word that it uses when it speaks of Christ looking at the multitude of people. The people who are supposed to be even the people of God. This is the visible church in that time, Israel. And yet they are without shepherds to care for them. And there are not enough laborers to bring in people truly. How does Jesus feel? Overcome with emotion. And somebody could object here and say, I don't understand this. Because Jesus is truly God. And as true God, he knows exactly how many people are elect, and he has all power. So if he doesn't like the state they're in, why doesn't he go out and just fix it right now? I submit to you, you know nothing of theology, and you know very little about the heart of God, if that's the way that you can think. 
According to his divine omniscience, of course, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, does know who will be brought into faith. But as true God, who is full of compassion, and you don't have to be able to wrap your head around that any more than an ant can understand both sides of your shoe. We are so small. As true God, God has compassion upon the suffering and the lost. And as a true human being, completely without sin, Jesus is able to look at these people with a true heart of humanity and yearn for them to be set free from the bondage of sin. To yearn for them to have hope. To yearn for them to know what fellowship with Christ is. It's been called sometimes the the Christian's secret that we have joy. And the world does not have the joy that Christians may have in Christ. Don't you want other people to have that? I can't speak for you, but I can bear witness in my life. There was a time in my life, from about age 10 to age 20, where not constantly but frequently I was in terror of death. What is going to happen after this? And I was in terror of appearing before God and hearing the words, you don't deserve to be in my presence. Go away forever. And then there was joy. I hope that future me, if I had a time machine, would have been willing to go back and try to evangelize past me. Not just because, oh, it's right to do it, but because of compassion. Because of the pain I was in. And others are in that this very day. Others whom the Lord will draw into his church through the means of you. You could say, well, that's Jesus and Jesus is without sin. But the Lord does work this in other people. Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul looked upon the multitude of unconverted Jews. And remember, he was a Jew. And it must have just grieved his heart that the people who were the original recipients of the oracles of God had turned away from Christ. And he says in Romans 9, verses 2 through 3, I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. How much compassion do you have to have to say that with conviction? I wish that I would go to hell if it would mean that they would go to heaven. That I would do whatever is in my power to be used of God if that be his will. Likewise, Moses, Exodus 32, pleads with God after Israel has offended the Lord and he's about to bring judgment against them. He pleads and he says, Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Those were sinners. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Moses, too, a murderer and a man of temper. And God worked this kind of compassion in these one-time bloodthirsty, uncompassionate people. Which means he can work this in us, too. And so I put it to you as a question. When you consider how few faithful ministers there are, And you may may be overestimating how many there are. When you consider how many people need proper care, need to hear the gospel, when you consider how few Christians are all in where you can say that their devotion to Christ and how they live in this world, really it is, that's the priority. And I'm not claiming that I don't, you know, have to reprioritize on a daily basis. 
But how do we feel about this? What we can see here is that Christ's heart is moved to compassion. And it's not because he looks out there and he sees people who deserve it. They don't deserve to be suffering. It's because he chooses to be gracious. And you who receive grace, that's the principle that moves us. Not, well, they, they don't deserve it. They're probably reprobate anyway. It's that you've received grace. And so the Lord calls us to look at the compassion of Christ first, even just so that we acknowledge, perhaps, that we don't have it, so that we would seek it from the Lord. But then how do we act on this and how do we seek this? Every instance of the word compassion in the New Testament, I put it to you to check if this is true. Every single instance of the word compassion in context is followed by action. It never occurs where there's not some action that comes from it. So a compassion that can be complacent, that is just sitting on its hands, doing nothing, a compassion that is complacent is counterfeit. It's not real. First John gets at this when he talks about just our temporal needs. In the first epistle that John writes, he says, if your brother comes to you and expresses a need and you basically say, be warm and filled, if you don't actually take care of him, how does the love of God dwell in you? That's true for temporal concerns, but also for spiritual. And so what response do we come to? This is our third and final main division. Look at me at verse 38. Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray. Pray. This is not put here, of course, to downplay our duty in all of the other ways that people are fitted for ministry. And I do want to be very careful. I don't believe this passage is exclusively talking about pastors. We occupy this role in a formal way and in a vocational way. But Ephesians 4 says that pastors prepare the church for the work of the ministry. You have Apollos, you have Paul, and he says, one man planted, another man watered. There are many different aspects to the harvest and to the care of the church. We all have a role to play, and there are many duties to be fulfilled, but prayer comes first. By putting it first, Jesus is recognizing that this has precedence. This is more important than the rest. If you do all the rest, you give half of all of your income to seminary educations, and you devote half your time to meeting with the youth and looking for and preparing future disciples. And yet you don't pray? What are you saying about the nature of the work, about where the power comes from? Paul, again, I planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. And the same is true in terms of the spiritual development that brings about somebody who's fully committed to the kingdom. That's not a natural thing. That's a supernatural thing. And the Lord puts prayer first because he wants us on our knees acknowledging to him, we're never going to do it, Lord, and it's never going to come from us unless you work this in us. And you can have hope that he will. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers. And then Jesus, that very night in the text, if you read further on, not right now, but you read further on, and Jesus spends the night in prayer when you compare the Gospels, compare Luke with Matthew. He spends a night in prayer, and then Jesus sends out laborers into the harvest, and Jesus himself goes out as the chief laborer. Christ is committed. Christ is in prayer too. So your prayer will not go unheard, but this means that all of our efforts without prayer 
are shown to be a sham. Note one more word here. Pray earnestly. How do you pray earnestly? This is a huge challenge for the the normal Christian. And by normal, I just mean everyone. How do you pray earnestly? There are some people who maybe seem earnest about prayer every time they sit down. I don't know how much of that is genuine, although God sometimes does work great maturity in some people. But if you, and you compare yourself against them, maybe when they pray publicly, they suddenly just sound so on fire. And you go, I wish I had that. I would love to know what they are in private. In private, I am given to believe that most people struggle to become earnest. And they give up in prayer long before they become earnest. How do you become earnest? The only methods I've learned of are to keep praying until you are humbled at the very fact that you don't care. And then crying out to God for forgiveness and asking him and discovering a work of the Holy Spirit where he blows, as it were, on the coals of your heart and gives you the care. Again, I'm, I speak, I can't speak for you. I speak as a witness to the work of the Holy Spirit. When I was 21 years old, or 20, right around the time of my conversion, I had been doing a kind of evangelism for a long time with my dad. He would take me out on Friday nights and we'd go evangelize down in Oceanside. And I really, and I must have spoken to hundreds or thousands of people in those four or five years. And yet the gospel that I believed, I don't think it was the gospel. I, I, you could ask me sometime. I don't want to say a false gospel in the pulpit here. I don't think it was the gospel. And then at Right between 20 and 21, the Lord brought me to a sense of the joy of the gospel. That Christ didn't just suffer on the cross to give you a new, more lenient way. That if you're just good enough, you'll be saved. But that he bore the whole penalty for sin after having already lived a perfect life that he freely counts to all who believe. And the Lord overcame my heart. And that wasn't me. And I would never want anyone to look at me or to Reverend Smith or any of our elders and think, oh, they're just better people, better, a better sort of Christian. And God just waits until he sees one. And he's like, oh, excellent. Here's one. I can use that person. The Lord makes them. And somebody was praying for me. I think it was my dad mostly, but I had excellent pastors too. My dad told me that he prayed every day that if the Lord wanted, that I'd become a pastor. I didn't know that. Earnest prayer precedes earnest people. And that means that when you go before the Lord, it's okay to tell him, Lord, I don't care this morning. But the Lord can breathe into you. And I remember a transition where I realized, God, these people that Christ deserves to be receiving glory from do not give him glory. Put that heart in me, and he will do it in you. I appeal to you then, not to look in yourself for the care, but to confess your need of it and to seek it from him. A little bit earlier, I told you that we would come back to the case of Phoenix and how would Jesus look at this place. And what about the URC? And I want to lay before you for a moment here something of the need of our time. I'm speaking as to people who are in the United Reformed Churches. I know that we have guests here, but I'm speaking a bit in-house because you ought not to be throwing rocks at other people's houses until you've dealt with your own. Actually, you shouldn't be throwing rocks. It's a bad analogy. (laughs) 
the URCNA, we are about 110 churches. We are a tiny federation in the world. Compare that to, say, the Nigerian Reformed Church. Nigeria is like the Alabama of Africa. It's not the whole thing. It's one area. And yet they have half a million people in the Nigerian Reformed Church. The URC is a blip. But we matter to the Lord. This is where the Lord has planted us. This is where we are trying to do some work. The URC has 110 churches, about 140 pastors, when you figure there's associate pastors and all that. In the next 15 years, half of them are going to retire. And who is going to replace them? And if we even want to not just replace them, but to multiply. And knowing that there is attrition in the ministry, not everybody who gets ordained stays in the ministry. And not everybody who enters the ministry is a great shepherd. And then you consider the number of men that we are graduating and ordaining. If we are to just, just replace the pastors who will retire, humanly speaking, may God have grace, we need to roughly double the number of men going to seminary and being ordained. And that is a big enterprise. And that's just to replace. And a church that's committed only to replacement is, in a manner of speaking, a failed project. The command is, go into all the world, make disciples. It's to be fruitful and multiply. We can't be okay with stasis. So to increase the number of churches, and I'm all about that, not increase the number of people at each one church and become giant churches where no one knows each other, It's hard to shepherd, even a church of this size. We need more shepherds. We appeal to you to care about that. And that means praying first and then acting upon that. We have to ask, why are we not, why are they not being raised up from within us? If you go through the Southwest classes, I know, bear with me for just a moment here. It's important that you understand this and that you walk out and and live in light of this. The Southwest Classes has about 14 pastors. Of those pastors, four of them were raised in Reformed churches. The other 10, myself included, are all imports. One pastor compared it to sectors of the American economy that we are dependent upon outsourcing and immigration. We don't have enough from within for the kind of work that we're doing. And we are outsourcing and we are immigrating people into our churches from Non-Christian backgrounds, evangelical backgrounds, I think that's great. I'm one of them. We'll take all the ministers we can get. But where are the ministers raised up from within from the past 26 years? I put the question out to our pastors this week, and I asked them, list everyone that you know of who grew up in one of our URC churches in the Southwest who's now in vocational ministry. Anecdotal, not perfect stats. I got back four names. Between 12 churches, 26 years. Where are our men? And who's to blame? There's a lot of factors. But I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, prayerfully pray over the people in this room whether or not God would raise for us future ministers. Do you not feel compassion about that fact? We are already on a road, humanly speaking, that does not speak well of our federation unless this changes. And it will not change without people getting on their knees and crying out to God and then taking the appropriate steps. 
Observe one more detail in the text with me at the very end. Christ tells him to go pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And I I like to imagine how that went that night. Because he's speaking to a big group. This is before he selects the 12. Speaking to a big group. He says, go pray for the Lord to send out people. And their prayers are probably like most of our prayers. Lord, please raise up others to go forth and to do your work. And then the next morning, Jesus says, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you're going out there, and it's going to be hard. And people are going to chase you out of town, and you're going to have to brush off your shoes. It's going to be rough, but I'm sending you. They weren't expecting that in their prayers, God was preparing them. And the Lord, through these prayers, very well may be preparing you. Whether that's as a minister of the gospel vocationally, or as a missionary, as someone who's allied to the church in vocational forms, whether that's as elders, deacons, or sometimes the equally hard calling of being their wives, whether that's to be women who are extremely proficient in making disciples, because we have a dearth of that throughout the Christian community. Men, by and large, have far more access, just because of the nature of the leadership structure, to people who will come alongside them and teach them. But we need that from women as well, women who are equipped Pray and pray instead, Lord, send others. Lord, if it be your will. Like Isaiah said, Lord, send me. In time, may he do it. The very fact that this is a discussion, the very fact that this is in the word, should give us hope that he's going to do it. But let's begin even now at prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you, in compassion upon the world, unthinkable as that is since you know all of our sins, all of our selfishness, that you did not look upon the whole world in scorn, but you determined to send forth your Son and to gather for yourself a people according to grace, as many as will look to you through him. And we ask that you would please settle upon our hearts the burden of yearning for Christ to receive the glory that he deserves. We confess, Lord, it will never come from ourselves naturally. But with you, all things are possible. Do it for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.